Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, Premier League Round 7. Wolves wield their wang to win v City while Spurs work my tip to get a happy finish. We talk controversy at Tottenham, the tackles and the tightness at the top and ask, should we draw the line with VAR since they didn't? Also, a Villa Thriller, Rootin' Tootin' Luton, Roy's Joy and much, much more in this Totally Football Show. Sunday, 1st of October, brand new month, brand new Totally Football show with the reliable, the familiar faces of Sasha Gurionov. Hello, James. Hello, Sasha. Also, Tim Spears. Hi, James. Hi, Tim. And Carl Anker. Hi, James. Hi to you, Carl. Carl's in Manchester, everyone. What's the weather like, Carl? <laughs> uh, 12 degrees, grey and raining. I see. More on that uh, later when we talk about Man United Crystal Palace. We just watched the only game on Sunday, which was Nottingham Forest against Brentford. 1-1, it finished. Carl, you saw bits of this. Sasha, you saw it on your way in. Tim, it finished 1-1. Oh, yeah? Yeah. yeah. Christian Norgard with his first goal in over a year. Nice goal it was too. Wouldn't you say, Sasha? Oh, yeah, it was, it was nicely done, but I think the keeper should have done better, yeah. a bit better there. I think Flecken could have done a bit better on the equaliser as well. Flecken. I think overall, a game between slightly struggling mid-table teams. Right. And I think you could see... I think Brentford needed something from this week because, you know, the, the other week against Everton, they were pathetic. So, Brentford, I think for them. Five games without a win mm. now. Mm. Five games without a win. Interestingly, uh, Forrest, equalising after they went down to 10 men. It's a thing. Yet another red card. They've now been 17 in the Premier League this season. Uh, at the same stage of the last campaign, they'd only been five. Why is that, Tim? That's a very, very good question. Oh, uh, of which I'm not sure I have the answer. Well, at the start of the season, we felt it might be because of the new protocols about getting yellows for inviting your opponent to be sanctioned and that kind of thing. But I'm not sure if that's been the issue here, has it? Carl, any thoughts? I mean, we've got this new let it flow edict, which is then running along the time-wasting edict, yeah. as, as well as the waving yellow cards. And I think it's just a, a weird confluence of uh, tired players yeah. who are just a bit fed up. I see. And more minutes. Yeah. There are many, oh, yeah, many more go. minutes being played. Bingo. There were 13 at the end of... We, everyone was aghast yes. at the amount of time at the end of Forest Brentford, for example. The players aghast. We were aghast, indeed. All right, well, two red cards in the game that you and Sash went to, Tim. The uh, by now infamous Spurs victory over Liverpool. Let's just quickly run through the scores so far on match day seven. We've still got Fulham-Chelsea to come on Monday evening, but uh, Villa kicked things off by handing Brighton an epic 6-1 hammering early Saturday. And then in the three o'clock games, you had Luton getting their first top flight win in 31 years. Where else but Everton? Palace won the winners at Man United and Wolves, whose game against Man City finished 2-1 Wolves. Uh, Arsenal and Spurs thus moved to just a point behind City. Arsenal with a 4-0 thumping of Bournemouth. Spurs with that 2-1 win at home to Liverpool. 
Also, there were 2-0 wins for Newcastle against Burnley and West Ham against Sheffield United. And uh, we're going to begin at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Christian Romero. Pedro Toro. Tim, Sasha, you were there for Tottenham 2, Liverpool 1. Another Spurs win, celebrated joyously by many in the stands and the players on the pitch as well. For most neutrals watching, though, this result against nine men, achieved with an own goal on pretty much the last kick of the game, came with a, a, the colossal asterisk of a calamitous Stockley Park stuff-up. Uh, I'm referring to the moment when, at nil-nil, and with Liverpool down to ten men, Luis Diaz had a goal disallowed by the officials, which VAR then failed to correct, despite the fact that although he was flagged for offside, he was clearly onside. Everybody could see that. VAR failed to intervene. Eventually, post-game, there was the announcement from Pogmol that, yes, there had been a significant human error. That was one of the blows to Liverpool. This was how Gary Neville took the news. Uh, PGMOL acknowledge a significant human error occurred oh, no. during the first half of Tottenham Hotspur against Liverpool. Oh, no. The goal by Luis Diaz was disallowed for offside by the on-field team of match oh, officials. No. Tim, wait, you were in the press room at, at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Yeah, I'd, uh, I'd just got off the phone from speaking to Duncan, Duncan Alexander, actually. Oh, yeah. and, then, uh, and then there was this, this shock moment where the uh, statement was read out on screen. And normally everyone's very busy at the end of the match, you know, mm. writing up their match reports. But the whole media cafe at Tottenham Hotspur, as, it, as it's called, uh, stopped. Everyone stopped what they were doing, staring at the screen and, and yelping and shouting and then furiously phoning their editors. It was, it was, yeah, it was quite a moment. Hold the back page. Mm. The other blow came right at the death when, despite going down to nine men, Sasha, nine men, and having held out to, what was it, the 97th 96, minute? 96, it was 96th minute. Yeah. Finally, Spurs get the winner off Joel Matip. I was nearly in tears for about 60 seconds when that went <laughs> I genuinely was like, I out, out. Because, because it was, it was just, it seemed it was just, like one of the great back yeah, to the yeah, exactly. performances. Yeah, exactly. It was just, my mates have, have said as well that this is possibly the most gutted they've ever felt in a league game. It's felt like a cup game. Ever? And yeah, yeah. People have said wow. ever. <laughs> just, just, just the whole... It was just too heroic, and it was almost there and then it fails. Yeah, I imagine there'll be Spurs listeners uh, at the moment going, well, now you know how it feels, Liverpool. They've had their share. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, do you remember the 4-3 four, four, in April? Oh, well, just, just recently, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was crazy. Well, an epic game, but so much of why it will stay in the memory is because of that VAR decision or lack of one. One of the suggestions about a pretty inexplicable error by VAR was that VAR thought the on-field officials actually given the goal, and thus when they quickly checked and immediately saw the Diz had been on side, they didn't bother to draw any lines because there was no need. And then the fateful message check complete was issued. But I'm not sure. Is that something that's been in any way verified, or is that just a theory out there? Well, it came from Dale Johnson, wasn't it, mm-hmm. uh, who is pretty authoritative on, mm. on, on these things. I don't think there's been an official com- confirmation that this happened. I don't think PGMOL said anything else. But certainly in the stadium at the time, my impression was, that was awful quick because it took them about 10 seconds. Yeah. As we were looking at the screens, because obviously in the press area, you, you have the screens in front of you. And all we saw was the fact that he was obviously on side. 
And next thing you know, the plays restarted and the screens around the stadium are still saying VAR check and progress. And everyone's sitting around immediately saying, what are the lines? That's blatantly on. Uh, I have my mates texting me going absolutely nuts. That is onside. And we just carry on playing. There's been a lot of conspiratorial talk online and I am always reluctant to assign malice where incompetence will do. But this is incompetence on such a scale. Well, here's an interesting angle from listener Doe Whelan who says, Michael Oliver, along with Stuart Burt and Dan Cook and Darren England, all went off to Dubai on a three-day trip during the week and returned 48 hours before the game. Should Pogmore refs be doing exhibition games in the United Arab Emirates? Question mark. I mean, if you were to fly <laughs> off and fly back 48 hours before a game with whatever lingering fatigue that might be involved and then produce a howler like this, I think it's legitimate to ask that question. It is, but also... 48... Hmm. 48 I, I hours mean, after a 6 48 hour hour, flight. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, mm, it's not that you much. Should, it's not that much. And, and what we've got here is just the miscommunication on the check complete and what was being checked for. It is a very simple mistake that there should be greater institutional apparatus to check, double check for. And you know, if Tim and Sasha are both in the stadium going, hang on, that's way too quick. Get the lines up. The fact that no one else has done that is a mess. And I mean, I, I'm going to defer to both of the, the gentlemen who were in the stadium, but the, the television well, being in the stadium, is bizarre. Arguably, you had even even less information than the, the rest of us watching at home. I, I'm not sure. But you're kind of bouncing it off people around you who right. sort of have their own connection. What did Yap Stam say? He was sat close um, to you. I mean, I, I heard the lads next to my left sort of right. nattering, nattering in Dutch and they, were, they were, and they were just pointing at the screen going, well, that, that's obviously on site. Right. <laughs> what on earth has happened? But mm. so I think... I think then people take it away and people try to understand what happens at half time and they're still talking about it after half time mm. and still no one can really understand. Klopp afterwards spoke uh, very well, I thought, when he first of all offered kind of warmth and sympathy for whoever was on VAR and then kind of went on to explain that it was because they they had done such a very terrible, terrible job. Um, he, when invited to comment on the VAR decision, said that he, he wasn't going to bite at that, he wasn't going to go down that road potential fines, etc. And he says that if anything's going to change, it's not just angry managers making headlines. Everybody needs to say something. People need to say something. I, I don't know if there's ever going to be momentum to roll back VAR, but if just out of interest, if we were to vote now, if it was to be a, God forbid, a referendum on it, how would you vote, Sasha? Um, I think what we found is that VAR in no way takes away human error. Hmm. Um, so that's where we're at. So would you get rid um, I, I would, but I've always been at that position. I'd be interested if, if anyone liked it, but has now decided to look enough. I, I was largely pro-VAR 18, 19 in the Champions League, 19, 20. And then the more I'm going to different football stadiums and the more instances we get like this, it has become very obvious that VAR is untenable in its current state. And to, to go back to the question about fatigue, about referees going to Dubai. That's mm. because referees aren't being paid enough, quite frankly, uh, which sounds ridiculous to say, but mm. you, one, way, one way you improve refereeing in the United Kingdom, you pay them more. You make the pathways easier from level you know, six up to you know, all the way up until the Premier League and whatnot. You make that pathway easier. You make sure when you are at the very, very pinnacle in the elite group, you're getting paid so much money that you don't need to go to Dubai to, to line your pockets. Uh, so there's that. And there's also the fact that when VAR was introduced, and we've we've done this so many times. You know, I remember Michael Cox and Rafa going back and forth of it in, in 2019. It was never properly explained. 
in and outside the stadium. We, as journalists, have frequently thrown our hands up and gone, I don't get it, when we should have done better. And I think it it's so hard to explain it because the rules keep changing or, or the interpretations keep changing. What's difficult time. to explain about it, Carl? I'm really sorry here because I feel like I'm going on a mini rant. But when you are trying to explain VAR, at best you sound a bit tin hat and at worst you sound like a nerd and unfortunately no one likes sounding like a nerd well, anymore okay the, the selling point that people might have expected it, it to be an infallible system because machines were involved mm -hmm. is one thing but that was always false yeah but if you're going to have humans operating machines you're always going to have the possibility of human error so and that's yes. what we've we've seen this weekend tim what would you all I, th I, th be? I think we could probably all agree that they tried to do too much too soon and that mm -hmm. okay we, we would all agree that goal line technology should have been brought in yeah and i think you're the definitive and this sounds silly given what we've seen this weekend is offside well semi-automated yeah offsides. which was voted against in in the, in the summer but right. I, I, I think i think we had that at the world cup and i think it worked well it's certainly in the champions league it, it seems to work well yeah uh and, and i think that that's the next step but yeah as carl says rule changes interpretations of rule changes there's too much confusion for the referees to uh, implement the laws correctly, and right. and you know w we all need to accept it's not going to get any better. I think um, because there are no new people coming into this to help out. Right. I, uh, I like Carl's point about paying more money, but would you get rid or not? Yeah, I'd I'd I'd, I'd scale it back for okay. sure. Well, my question in this situation, though, this this was the decision on Saturday mm. would have been. And e like one of the easy decisions you could make with VAR, I think, you know, mm. in, terms of, in, in terms of interpreting what an offside is quite a sort of a, di a more definitive argument than maybe some of the other areas. And the fact that it went so spectacularly wrong, I think then undermines the entire system because this is one of, I think this is one of the simple decisions they can make. And they messed it up. One question I would have, James, I mean, say in, in Serie A, and they have VAR, mm. like, is it on the same scale that every week there is a scandal of someone misapplied and something went grotesquely wrong? Or is this something that's not even talked about? No, no, I mean, it's talked about. But I think in Italy, there's always been a massive culture of controversy around refereeing decisions. So, so just, so just, <laughs> it just gets lost in amongst that. But, for example, there was a huge uh, VAR controversy last year when um, Milik scored a goal for Juventus. When, when they, oh, of course, yes. You remember? Blind spot, yeah. And they didn't have the right yeah. cameras. Mm -hmm. for They didn't supply the right angle to, to VAR. And they missed the fact that he was absolutely well on side. There was a player off screen on the angles that they'd had. And that's potentially one of the reasons why they brought in semi-automated... Uh, offside, saw no sow. <laughs> I think I think we've had two real big problems in the past few weeks that that really damaged the trust of this process. One obviously at the weekend, and then what Mike Dean said a few weeks ago that the reputational damage to VAR is. Remind me what Mike Dean said. A couple. So he he basically said he didn't tell a referee to go to the screen to reverse a decision when Romero was pulling Kukurea's mm -hmm. hair during the Spurs Chelsea game because he didn't want to uh, embarrass him or he'd had a bad game. He didn't want to. Right. He was basically helping his mate. Yeah, hel helped his mate. That was the inference. Very clear inference. Yeah. Right. Which, which VAR's gone from being, I mean, it was initially sold as some sort of deus ex machina solution to all manner of refereeing solutions. And now what we've got is it very much feels like referees marking each other's homework and the constant relitigation of, of the rule book in real time. And we've been speaking for five, ten minutes here, and I'm really sorry to Tottenham and Liverpool fans who actually want to talk about what happened in the game because, again, you just sound dull doing All right, this every then, single God. week. All right, then. Point I'm sorry. Taken. I'm sorry for no, being you're terrible. Abs you're absolutely no, right. But, well, the problem is this happened in the game, and it's yeah. had quite a significant bearing on the game. And I don't know at, at what stage we're going to start reaching discussion of maybe replaying games in which grotesque errors happen. 
Mm. You'd like that, wouldn't you, Sash? Well, probably not in the, again, because that's going to spawn yet another, you know, massive conspiratorial discussion. But as Klopp said on Saturday, you know, sorry, like, what am I going to do with your sorry? Yeah, indeed. Let's talk about the game, though, because there are things that Klopp can do things with from that performance, even in defeat, even seeing that unbeaten streak coming to an end. And equally, Postacoglu, even though his side won and the great celebrations at the end, there'll be things that will concern him, perhaps. Tim, from that kind of widely observed ineffectiveness to take advantage of the first one-man, then two-man advantage. Yeah, I've got, I've got to say, having seen every Spurs game this season, this was this was down there with their worst performances, particularly sort of the last 20 minutes when Liverpool went down to nine. Mm. And I'd, I'd seen this in their previous home game against Sheffield United, who had a very low block and, and limited ambitions to attack. Spurs struggled really badly to, to break through them. And I saw a, a very similar thing as soon as Liverpool went down to nine. They had no ambitions to attack, understandably. And Spurs, yes, really struggled to play through them. They slow the whole game down. Their clarity of thought wasn't there. Um, they lack game-changing uh, substitutions. Uh, these are problems that, that, will, that will potentially pile up for Spurs in the coming weeks. Um, but for the moment, they just have this incredible belief and desire and will to win and it's sort of pulling them through to these unlikely results mm. um, and yeah we we saw a, a full time just you know the, the feeling about the place is incredible at the moment right and in as for all that the performance might not have been all that amazing just getting another win getting their first win over Liverpool in what six years well see yeah and that was part of, that was part of the behind the feeling at full time you know that Liverpool yeah they haven't been there for six years um, obviously Liverpool's unbeaten record goes into that of 17-18 games stretching back to last season the timing of the goal and this this it really is a honeymoon period you know they're all they're all like speak to Spurs fans a lot they're all looking forward to going to matches you know they're, they're really they're in, in the moment as it were that bubble has not burst at all yet 17 points after 7 games wide that's their best start to a season since uh Last campaign, yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. Antonio yeah. Conte, how did that work? Yeah, out? and I've, I've, you know, I've written about that exactly that for tomorrow. But um, what have you said? Well, just there are a lot of similarities. I think they had one more goal last season as well, despite mm. the fact that they're they just so, bid less to six two. I think. Yeah, yeah. Game. They're so mm. they're so free scoring this time. But the, the, there are just so many different facets to their game, and also a lot of players who have not played in the Premier League before or not played for this team before. Players like Vicario. A doggy, Van de Ven. These guys have come from nowhere and settled in and are doing exceptional things. All of them contributed massively yesterday. Mm. Vicario with his double save, Van de Ven, classic Rolls Royce defender. I thought he was brilliant. Right. And, a, and a, a doggy acquitted himself very well against Salah for the majority of the game, having done okay against Saka after a really tough start last week as well. So there are lots of promising signs that they can get better as well. But Postacoglu certainly not getting in any shape carried away. He's just pleased okay. with the performance. I'll tell you what he might be getting, a signed poster from the Fonz. <laughs> <laughs> so when did he, was he, was he across that in the post-game press conference? When did that come through? No, then? he didn't no, mention no. the Fonz name. Yeah, it was this, afterwards. Yeah, yeah, it was came afterwards. Okay. Yeah. If I may observe so from the other side, looking on at Spurs, I actually thought there were spells in the game where Spurs were very smart, 10 v 11. They were over, overloading the left flank, you know, the whole doggy sort of Charleston combination. That's how they created the goal. I thought they were really turning the screw in the second half. Just, it's, it's not necessarily through great moments, just suffocating pressure. Liverpool couldn't get out. And Liverpool were trying to get out 10 v 11. And I think it's almost the worst thing that could have happened for Spurs was the fact that Jota was sent off. Liverpool had no choice. They had to go 5-3-0 and just sit there. And I think this is when, also talking about belief, I thought belief gradually drained out. And I think what Liverpool did very well was waste the time. And for some reason, in the last minute, they kind of rushed a couple of things instead of like taking time over free kick or going to the corner. And this was Spurs. The only time Spurs got chances in the last 20 minutes 
or 25 minutes was when Liverpool tried to maybe get out and that kind of cost them their organization and they're slightly peddling back you know when when they when the equal when the winning goal goes in but again like I saw a lot of bitterness from Liverpool fans saying oh the celebration that they won the World Cup or whatever you won a game almost saving your face but also at the same time you keep on your own run going you scored a 96th minute winner what's there not to celebrate I can perfectly understand that emotion and at the same time I think Liverpool fans and players were celebrating the team and themselves because this was an utterly heroic performance in on no scoreline obviously there's a winner and a loser but I think Liverpool especially Klopp I think they're taking away a lot of positives from this the manner of the defeat yeah was was slightly tragic but very heroic basically the, the way you defended with 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 a man down there because you've had some practice with that well I keep, keep on keep on getting more practice I think there was a stat out there Liverpool played some stupid amount of minutes this right. season with well, yeah, no, down. Sasha, I can give you those numbers. 158 minutes so far this season. Liverpool have had four red cards in six Premier League matches this campaign in the last six. To put that into perspective, that is uh, more than they had in their previous 168 league matches. What's happened to Liverpool this season? Well, I think... If anything, they should have had lost more red cards last season when they were completely off pace. And also, again, if you look at Saturday, Liverpool do folded last season. I think it's circumstance. It's almost an accident. There was one bad decision in McAllister in one of the previous games. Van Dijk, last man. On Saturday, there was some discussion again about the nature of the red cards. I initially thought Jones, Jones was stonewall red. But, you know, having spoken to some people, including, you know, former international defenders, they kind of said, look, he was going for the ball and right. his foot rolled over. But uh, is intent any part of the rules? Well, no, but I think the power with which you go into it. Um, I mean, look, I've had... Was I, it a reckless challenge? I don't think it was. That's the thing. Or did he mean to do it? I think <laughs> reckless in meaning is yes. slightly... So I don't think it was reckless. Look, I had the leg going through my shin once and, yeah. you know, it was in pieces. It wasn't a red card. It just sometimes circumstances just conspired against right. you. So there was a very interesting running around in circles from Andros Towns on Sky Sports where Towns had admitted, it, you know, letter of the law, that's a red card. But he said, it, as a football player, I, I'm uncomfortable mm. with that being a red mm. card. And I think that's the frisson there in that a lot of people who've played a lot of football have been the person making that tackle and also been on the receiving mm. end of that tackle once mm. in a while. And you almost, you know, it's that orange card tackle of, if, if it gets red card, okay, fair enough, you shouldn't right. complain too much. But also, if it, if it happens to you, you kind of want that guy, to, that person to get sent off as well. The suspensions, is that going to be a big factor for Liverpool? So, I would uh, recommend for people to check out the um, TIFO video that JJ did on Jones mm. about mm. how what he's added to Liverpool's midfield. So, I think they'll miss that. Um, so he's got three games. I, so I, th I think he's going to get three games for this. Um, and in that period, they put Brighton. He's going to be a big miss for Brighton, uh, whom they have next week. Uh, then for Jota, Jota wasn't really a starter at mm. this stage. Uh, I think one guy they would miss is going to be Gakpo, who went off with an injury. Uh, I think he got done in the tackle just before he scored. But then again, Liverpool have Nunez coming in, who's been excellent coming in as a cameo. I think now he's going to have to start. He was going to come on on Saturday. But they had to pull him back because of every, because of the second red. And, you know, that wouldn't be a situation for to introduce him. So, uh, yeah, kind of scraping the barrel a little bit. But I think the biggest loss probably is going to be Jones. OK. But the biggest, the biggest find is, is that heart. That heart that Jürgen it's, was motioning to on the it's, side. It's not just right? heart, it's engine. The, right. Liverpool have completely changed the engine this season. Soboslai could do two men's jobs. He could, probably couldn't do three men's jobs one day, but once they went down tonight. But the way they kept going, and as I said, last season they would have folded... The whole spirit, I think, is excellent. Everybody contributed. Also, special mention to Alison Safe from Madison. Oh my word, uh, beautiful, beautifully done. And then from Son two minutes later. So I think the whole, the whole I think the siege mentality that 
this will help Klopp create. Mm. Like this whole sort of gang mentality, like we're in this together and we're going to take on the world. Mm. I think this is exactly the sort of outcome that is going to really, really, you know, um, feed into that. They remain just two points off the top of the table because here's another positive for Jurgen Klopp and company. Manchester City lost. We'll talk about how that happened next. Hi everyone, David Ornstein here, and I want to tell you about The Athletic's new bite-sized podcast, The Daily Football Briefing. If you're one of those people who are just too busy for a regular length podcast in the morning, this is right up your street. In just over 10 minutes, we'll bring you bang up to date with the biggest stories in football, all before you've finished your first coffee of the day. It'll be Matt Slater on a club's ongoing takeover saga, our club experts reflecting on big overnight matches, and let's be honest, me explaining those transfer stories that just won't go away. That's the Daily Football Briefing, every weekday morning, available wherever you get your podcasts. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Kilman, lovely ball, spotting the run of Semedo down the right hand side. Wolves need some players in the penalty area. Semedo's cross took a little deflection. It's going to come here for He Chan Wang. Brilliant charge down, Kunya. Wang! Yeah! yeah! Wolves lead again! Wolves lead again! Wolves 2, Man City 1 Saturday afternoon. Pep Guardiola had warned pre-match of the, of the dangers that his side would face. Especially up front with uh, Neto, with Cunha, with uh, the Korean guy. And and, and he, how right he was proved. Joining us now on the line is Steve Maidley, who was at the game. Steve, how did this, probably the most surprising result of the season so far, how did it happen? It happened due to the tactical masterclass from, from Gary O'Neill, who's had a lot of stick from Wolves fans, some of it deserves, earlier in the season. And he changed things around completely. He went, he went to a 5-4-1 or 3-4-3 system, which he hadn't used before. He went to a low block when he'd, he'd been trying to pretty much do high press in every previous game. And you have to say, it worked a treat. Um, early Haaland barely got a kick of the ball. Foden was really quiet. Alvarez scored a brilliant free kick, but didn't really contribute a lot, a lot else. And Wolves just really suffocating Man City. Closed up all the gaps, didn't give them any space to work in and kind of deserved the win. Is this something that Gary O'Neill's side can push on from? And, and how much is Wolves' future dependent on the form of the extraordinary Pedro Neto? Yeah, I think Pedro Neto, you'd you have to say, without too much exaggeration, on current form, he's one of the best players in the world. He's getting assists and goal contributions every week in the best league in the world. And he's back to the kind of form that Tim would have seen him in a couple of years ago. In terms of whether Wolves can push on from here, I think psychologically they would hope that it would be a, a big platform for them to build from in future games. Whether it's tactically a platform for them to build them will, will be an interesting one because the way they played yesterday with with the low block and with suffocating teams and being fairly defensive and being counter-attacking is kind of a style of play that, that they've been trying to get away from and the fans have been wanting them to get away from and that they've worked hard to get away from in the previous six games this season. 
they've gone back to that style for what looked like a fairly kind of bespoke one-off game plan against Man City. So the temptation, I guess, for now for Gary O'Neill would, would be to to stick with, with something similar to that for the for the games ahead. Villa mm. at home is going to be another tough game, but then Wolves fans would obviously welcome any kind of plan that, that got points against Manchester City. But whether they would accept Wolves going back to being a low block defensive counter attacking team for the entire season, I'm not so sure. So it'll be interesting to to see what they do there. Okay, anyone you want to cite uh, the goal scorers we mentioned, Neto. Uh, we, who actually ended up with the goal being credited as a as, a, as an own goal, uh, and then uh, Huang Hui Chan, who's been extraordinary, what, four goals so far this season. Uh, anybody else you want to cite for uh, for praise from this performance? Craig Dawson was immense, and again, part of this this master plan by Gary O'Neill was was to give Craig Dawson basically the perfect Craig Dawson job to do. That Wolves were so tight and compact around him that he didn't. He never really had to stretch his legs and and get run by Erling Haaland into into big wide open spaces. They came up with a plan that basically put Craig Dawson up against Erling Haaland in a physical battle, and he he just won it hands down. He won every header, every tackle. He basically bullied Erling Haaland. Dawson was immense with a lot of help from from Max Kilman, who basically just, despite being on the right side of the back three, Kilman was effectively the spare man. So every time. Haaland did win the first contest against, against Dawson, which wasn't it wasn't often, but it did happen. Max Kilman was there to just mop up the bits and pieces. So, yeah, Dawson was immense. And after a, a fairly shaky start to the season, in, in some respects, he was back to his real, real commanding bet yesterday. Brilliant. Steve, thank you so much for that. Look forward to seeing your piece up on The Athletic. It will be there, listen, by the time you, you hear this. Breaking down. Uh, with excellent uh, expertise, uh, exactly how Gary O'Neill overcame the best team that there's ever been in football, ever. Thank you, Steve. Cheers. Steve Maidley, whose piece, as I say, you can find now on The Athletic. Uh, is it fair to say, Tim, Wolves watcher as you are, that that result, although it was achieved in a different manner, was kind of coming because Wolves had been looking good in several games. Well, they'd been looking good against the the, the bigger teams in the league. They played Man United off the park at the right. weekend. They they were phenomenal against Liverpool for mm. the first half uh, before capitulating the second half. And yet, in the week leading up to this game, uh, they'd drawn at Luton and lost to Ipswich. Mm. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a bit confusing. And, you know, obviously I know a lot of Wolves fans and the, the tide had turned or started to turn against Gary O'Neill He's, there won't be much patience for him you know a, a guy with not much of a career behind him in management and sacked by Bournemouth in June you know you're not going to get a lot of patience for that when they've had Julian Lopetegui as, as their previous manager you know guys who won the Europa League so he, he needed that a lot um, ju- just to quickly pick up on something Steve said I, mean, I think Pedro Neto is going to have a, a real standout season he was flying two years ago he was their player of the season by a mile he was in the Portugal squad he was going to the Euros and then he broke his kneecap mm. and it's been two years of injury hell since then But because well, he had that which kept him out the rest of that season and much the, the following one yeah com- complications that's right and complications from the knee which the, re- the rehab didn't go well right. and, then, and then the ankle and people will forget I'm sure that when they sold Diogo Jota to Liverpool it was partly because Neto was just emerging at the time and they thought his Jota's replacement and I was I thought at that time he's Definitely got a higher ceiling than Jota, in my opinion. He's got he's got more to his game. He's got goals and assists because you know Jota's not much of a creator. He's two footed. He's quick. He's direct, and his enthusiasm for the game is mm. is wonderful. He's he's a he's a fantastic guy to interview. So yeah, he's what what, what has he told you? Uh, I remember him telling me that his his mom kept telling him he needed to shoot more, 
And she was like, she's like, you need to shoot, shoot. I don't know. It was on Zoom because it's in the pandemic season, but he's so enthusiastic. I remember telling me he could have, he had the choice of being a footballer or a uh, roller, roller hockey. Is it? Oh, yeah. Oh. Uh, oh. He had the option of going, yeah, either that or, and, or football. And all, and uh, all the ro- roller hockey places were taken, were they? Apparently. So, yeah. yeah so he went, went for football instead. Yeah. Extraordinary. W- wow. Was the net a run? Because I can't remember. Was the net a run? Against Luton. No, the net a run, I think, is the thing now. Because oh, right, he seems yeah. to be doing it at least once a game. He creates something stupendous with it. Was this a thing two years ago? Because here he does a 50-yard run through the opposition defence and doesn't matter whether it's Luton or whether it's City. They can't right. stop it. Yeah, and it used to suit them a lot because yeah, Nuno was manager yeah. at the time, so it was sort of built around him. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's, he's very adept at that. Excellent. All right. Hey, uh, City, is this a template for teams to beat them? Or is it all about, as Gary O'Neill himself highlighted, the fact that Rodri's a really important player? We did. I think everyone talked about this, how they were going to perform without him and it's been back-to-back defeats no beaten by Newcastle in the League Cup midweek beaten by Wolves this weekend and who they got for the third game of his suspension away at Arsenal yeah I think it's six of one and half a dozen of the other in that Manchester City like a number of teams that you can describe as being Johan Cruyff influenced will always be slightly risky on the defensive transition because they put so many men ahead of the ball and whatnot so if you can beat the the initial pressure and break quickly, then City always needs someone there who can do you know, tactical fouling, shall we say. You know, historically that was Vincent Company, then it became Fernandinho, then Rodri has now stepped up and become that person. Um, Calvin Phillips, it seems like, is not that person. He started against Newcastle, wasn't very good in the League Cup, and I think he only got 25 minutes against Wolves. Mm. Uh, and it was Mateo Kovacic, who was the deepest midfielder for City against Wolves there. And Mateo is a fantastic press-resistant box-to-box player. He's not. He's not got that adept eye for uh, making a tackle and being not that sort of player. So, yeah, this is this is this is the rare moment where there is a, a weakness that can be exploited. But as Gary Neil said, and I think as was mentioned in the match today, you have to be perfect in when you are trying to exploit this on a counter-attack because if you get that pass wrong in the final third, you're not going to get a goal. I think what was really, really good for, for the winner was just how quickly Nelson Semedo bombed on in the wide area because they realised it was on. Great tweet from Wolves as well, just putting out the Korean guy. Sensational. Yeah. Uh, but also I think maybe me, me thinking in very simplistic terms, but mm. that base of midfield at City for many, many years would have been Rodri and Gundogan. And suddenly you end up with Kovacic and Mateus Nunes. And it's, it's, it's a different dynamic. And I think it's a different ability. It's a different way of progressing the ball. So I think... You know, when you have Rodri and Gundogan, I think it's, it's a level above what we saw yesterday. Mm. I've just found that uh, interview in relation to what you're asking about Neto earlier. So he, so he says because he was quite adept at roller hockey, uh, that gives him a good low centre of gravity in football, fast rotating, protecting the ball, but he says his back already feels like it's 30 years old. <laughs> so, you know, swings around the so That's a really interesting kind of cross-sport career it is. path. I mean, Shevchenko had his background as an ice hockey yeah. player. But I've never seen anyone come out of the wild world of uh, roller hockey. The other one that springs to mind in the Wolves team is Max Kilman, who played futsal. And, yep. and that benefits International. Him right. With his, the Longstaffs uh, at uh, Newcastle, their father was a GB Ice Hockey mm-hmm. International, uniquely. Um, yeah. Anyway, next up for City away to Arsenal, who were 4-0 winners Saturday afternoon. It was a good day for Gary O'Neill, wasn't it? Because Bournemouth getting hammered by, the, <laughs> by uh, <laughs> Arsenal there. Uh, this is the first time Arsenal have ever won their first three away games in a league campaign without conceding a single goal. It also saw Bakayo Saka on the score sheet, despite injury concerns 
regarding his presence. After he got the ball rolling, it felt like they had a bit of a party. Odegaard had a penalty, and then they went, oh, look, Kai Havertz, go on, you have one. Was that a bit awkward, do you think? I don't know. Maybe they just said, there's no one on penalties, whoever fancies it. All right. Yeah. It really felt like a pointed attempt to get Havertz up and running. Right. Um, we'll be talking about his role in the left central midfield between now and the end of the season several times, but I think now he's got that goal that... Yeah, yeah, calms things down, and also think? I think the, the celebrations as well were really pointed. Uh, two or three Arsenal players sort of push, sort of pushing him towards the away fans, going, "Go on, like this, this is your moment. You can enjoy yourself." So, if even if the outsiders sounds don't a bit believe, like therapy. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. I, would, I would feel a bit embarrassed about it if I would try Havertz. I think it's good that even if the outsiders still have question marks over Havertz, and I am one of them, right. the fact that the other Arsenal players back him and mm. back him that publicly. I think that will be really, really important for his continued adjustment. That's true. All right. Well, next weekend looks really interesting because, as mentioned, there's Wolves against Villa and Arsenal against uh, Man City. Bournemouth, meanwhile, are going to be travelling to Everton, who are just a point above them. And, of course, we're going to be hearing about what happened to Everton very, very shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. You're listening to the Totally Football Show with James Richardson, the Sports Podcast Awards Soccer Podcast of the Year. Swept on by McGinn, Hawkins in for another, and then on the follow-up it's Douglas Luiz. Six for Aston Villa. So many extraordinary games this weekend in the Premier League. And the first game of the round actually set the tone nicely at Villa Park. Aston Villa 6, Brighton 1, Sasha. Villa, they're fifth now. Back-to-back wins against Chelsea and this against Brighton. They were 3-0 up after 25 minutes. What? Pressed. They pressed in midfield and they pressed aggressively. And that's what struck me. Mm. Because I think in previous games, so often I find high line, not enough pressure in midfield. And in this game, I thought they ran them down blind alleys very, very well. They jumped on Brighton players in midfield superbly. Any turnover, they were on it in a flash. And this was three or four goals, and I think very representative. I think it's the fourth one when there is Gilmore is spinning in midfield. There's four players around him, and he kind of spins into yet another Villa player, and they break away. So for me, the thing that was striking was how aggressive they were. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, they scored a first goal by a very patient build-up, slightly pulling Brighton out of position. I think a stupid and Mitomo on that flank, taking advantage, going around that side and scoring. So I think very elegant play, aggression, and of course uh, Watkins. Watkins, mm. with whom mm. Wolves are going to have to deal next week. Somehow, maybe the way they've dealt with Holland, maybe for example, because he's that dangerous at the moment. Perhaps so. His second hat trick of the season, quite extraordinary. He hadn't scored in the Premier League prior 
to last weekend, but he's now had four and two, the other hat-trick coming against uh, Hibs in the Conference League playoff. Uh, Rue Lang says, hello, Rue Lang. Watkins will rightly take the plaudits, but is John McGinn just a very, very good player under Emery and maybe still underrated? Is he who you want to talk about when you talk about Villa? Yes, he's among many that I want mm. to talk about. Villa won due to just really good variable pressing as well. Um, so I was talking to Liam Thumb and Liam has mentioned before about how the Zerbi's kryptonite seems to be a middle block that selects its pressing moments very, very well. So as, as Sasha just said, the first goal, they, they play really slowly and they speed it up. So it's this slow, slow, fast. Brighton want to bait the press and then play through you. If, so you have to make your pressing the rhythm has to be correct and you have to know exactly when to jump. And McGinn was really, really important to this because one, he's a very, very good midfielder. He's a very good ball carrier. Uh, and two, I mean, he's colloquially referred to as meatball. He's a big boy. Uh, and against Brighton's mid- midfield of Gilmore and Hinshawood, uh, he, he, he got himself about. This was veteran experience against the uh, slightly more callow Duke. And that's why Aston Villa was so good in that they were very good at picking their moments when pressing in the centre and they made sure they matched up Brighton's wide players and just physically dominated them. I mean, it was um, it, it was high risk in terms of uh, isolating players one on one, and you know Villa did change it up a bit. We're going a bit, little bit more direct. It was a really interesting quote from McGinn after the game. He said after Emery's tactical meeting of the morning of the game, he came out of it saying uh, we're either going to win six one or lose six <laughs> one. <laughs> Which, when you're playing Brighton, is usually what happens. It's a big score on one way or the other. Yeah, well, Brighton did win the XG battle, though, so yes, know, I'm sure they're, they're fans to be delighted with Which that. is extraordinary, because they won it by quite yeah. a margin and mm-hmm. lost the game by quite six goals to one, which is... <laughs> yeah. yeah, although a, a concern for them will be De Zerbi saying afterwards how they played without mm. mental energy. Yeah. Which, right, which yeah, is, he cited the, 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 the cup, the European commitment has had yeah, an Yeah, which is going to be a factor for, for them and Villa this season right. and Newcastle. And it is interesting that Newcastle beat Villa 5-1 on the opening day, then Newcastle lost to Brighton 3-1, and now Brighton have lost to, to Villa 6-1. So they're all beating each other quite convincingly, which is an unusual set, set of results for three teams who did so well last season. Deserby called it another kind of football when you're playing every three days. But for Unai Emery, that's something he's more than used to because he's got that track record in European competition. Just a reminder, when he arrived, Aston Villa were, what, 16th? And there they are in fifth. Amazing. Well, I, I, th- I think from when he was hired towards... The end of the season, or just before the end of the season, they were they were third in that particular table, which is over a prolonged period of time, mm. which yeah bodes very well for this year. It certainly does. Meanwhile, at the bottom, Burnley got beaten again. Blades did too, but the Hatters at Luton, two one winners at Everton. Carl Anker celebrating out there. Yeah, <laughs> their first top flight win in thirty one years. First goal from. Skipper Tom Lockyer, which was remarkable because it was the first Luton goal this season that wasn't either scored or assisted by Carlton Morris, which sounds really impressive. But how many other goals had there been? Two. Oh, okay. Mm. Uh, but then <laughs> Carlton Morris got one for himself and a very nicely worked goal that was too. Did you enjoy that set-piece routine, Carl? I did, very much so. That, that Luton performance was Sean Dyche-esque, if that makes sense. Mm. Strengthening set-pieces, making sure you dominate your battles in both boxes uh, and... You know, trying to smother the space where possible. Everton looked... <sighs> yeah, I'll just leave it there. Everton looked... <sighs> okay. Four home I... defeats out of four now, Carl. I, th- I, think that, I think this is very much Everton, you know. So much optimism after a couple of games. 
they have losing at home and they lose. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that's pretty much where they're, they're at at the moment. And I think, again, it, it, it seems to be impossible to build the momentum. And I think, you know, the players they've bought, I mean, I think there's been a lot of talk about Beto. But he then they went... Dreadful, but, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, he's terrible. Like, from what I've seen so far, can't finish. With well, his head, with his feet, had two presentable chances here. I think he also forces Everton to go direct. And if anything, what Luton want, go direct. That's how they play. That's what they can deal with. In, uh, other, in other games, though, it was said that he'd performed a valuable role holding up the ball, l- allowing an outlet. That, that, that's fine, but, mm. but they need to score goals. In their, in their three home games this season that they would have targeted to win, which is Fulham, Wolves and Luton, they got an XG of seven and they scored one goal. Mm. So there's your problem. There's your problem. What about Luton? Can they build from this? Their next game is Burnley. Uh, yeah, Luton v Burnley. It's genuinely a big game. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, so the only team that in 2023 has gone to Kenilworth Road and come away with a win and a clean sheet is Burnley in the Championship. So this was the one that was uh, postponed. postponed for the mm-hmm. end of the season. So, yeah. yeah, the table has been slightly skewed uh, right. for those two Tuesday teams. Tuesday night, they're finally going to hold it. Yeah, uh, you, you mentioned um, Luton's second goal was, was great to watch. I preferred the first one because it, it was a sliding tackle. It's brilliant. It's blocked it in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, but I, I think from listening to, to Rob Edwards, who's, who's, I don't know, he's a really good talker, comes across really well. I think they've got a real sense of being looked down on by the rest of the league. They feel that, they're using that energy. You know, Garth Crook says they'll be down by Christmas, so they invite him, you know, to Kenilworth Road to, to give him a talking to. You know, I, I, I think they're using that, you know, you talk about Liverpool's siege mentality earlier. That's what Luton are trying to create because they haven't got the quality to stay in the league. So they need to use something else. And, and I think they really feel belittled by the way that people are talking about them. Yeah, and I mean, I think I'm one of those people who talk about them like that because I just think, I mean, I don't think the quality is there. That's the thing. And so how much can you jump over that limitation through sheer, you know, will, tactics and everything else? Because in the championship, they looked like a team very much punching about the weight for, you know, for very good reasons. So how much higher can they punch in this league, in this league above? And I think given what they have, I mean, I think it's probably correct the way they play, given their strengths. But for example, Adebayo has been dropped now. Because I think, you know, the big man in championship, he was very limited when he came up against high quality defenders. Um, and so he didn't start, for example, at, at Everton. I think they brought him on later on, I think, as they basically were just even going longer themselves. So there are adjustments that need to be made. But I just think they just can't, I, I don't think it's going to be possible for them to consistently bridge that gap in quality. For the moment, they're outside the bottom three. One point ahead of Bournemouth who are there in 18th spot on three points. Burnley and Sheffield United both on a point apiece. Burnley this weekend beaten 2-0 at Newcastle. Miguel Almiron and then a penalty from Alexander Isaac. Uh, and as for the other lot, the Blades, they got beaten by Hammers. Kind of the blacksmith classico, you'd call <laughs> this one. 2-0 uh, it was at the London Stadium. Jared Bowen and Thomas Suchek. The scorers for West Ham. All right, Carl. You know we ha- we haven't talked about it yet. Yes, shall we? All Building right. up. After Building this, up. listener, we'll leave the mics on, show ourselves out, and leave <laughs> Carl there to to do Man United Crystal Palace. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network.
Totally Football Show will return with a special Euro edition, previewing the Champions League late Monday, early Tuesday, as managers try and get their tired bodies, their weary squads together for a brand new set of fixtures and big games out there as well. Big games. Anyway, uh, Rafa, Jules, James and Alvaro will be breaking it all down in the Totally uh, on well, late Monday, early Tuesday. Tim Spears, you've been writing about weary teams, the threat to football. Let's go out and strike. Mm, yeah, big talk from several managers last yeah. week. Uh, I think Vincent Company got the ball rolling by suggesting there should be a cap on the number of matches that players can play in a season. Mm. And then Ten Hag said his players can't cope with the right. workload that they've got. And Pep said, look, no one's going to sort this out. No governing body is going to cut the amount of matches right. that they're going to play more yeah. because the World Cup's getting bigger, the Champions League's getting bigger, yeah. and the Club World Cup is now going to be this massive, Hooray. huge yeah. uh, summer competition in 2025. So, so th- because of TV coverage and money, nobody's going to cut down the matches. Mm. Who's gonna, who's it going to be up to? He suggested, you know, players might have to strike if it, if it comes to that. Right. Um, so, yeah, uh, the PFA and FIFA have been banging this drum for a long time, but... I think it's going to become a bigger issue in the next couple of years. Do you think? I think so. With, with these increased games, with June June games in the, with the Nations League, that Kevin De Bruyne saying absolutely pointless last year. Um, yeah, like I said, competition is getting bigger, not smaller. Right. The, the players can't cope. You know, you see someone like Perisic playing age 34, playing 58 games for two years in a row, mm. doing his ACL under, under no contact a couple of weeks ago. And you see Rafael Varane retiring from international duty age 29. You know, there are... Things that are starting to, to happen here, which, which you know, w- what is the tipping point? When is there too much football? The, the, I don't know, because I think the, the public will, will really struggle to, to get behind this, to see this as, as, a, as a worthy yeah, cause. I think you're right. I do think there needs to be a narrative change other than managers moaning about how many matches they've got to play yeah. and millionaire players moaning about how much football they've got to play. Mm. And it's probably going to have to come down to what the science uh, and the fact that these players cannot cope with with travelling hundreds of thousands of miles as well for air travel, and then right. coming back on a Thursday night from Peru and then playing in the Premier League on Saturday or Sunday, yeah, it's just it feels unsustainable. To I've me. got two suggestions. One, you scrap the League Cup, and I'd be sorry to see it go, but the French have done it, and for I think precisely this reason. And secondly, here's another thing the French have done, as Tom was telling us only the other day: reduce the size of their league to eighteen teams. I like eighteen team leagues. I think the best one is a minutes cap, a maximum minutes cap. This is com- company said this in 2019 when he was at Andelect. I think you can also sell a minutes cap in a good way if you do it properly. It's sort of no football player can play more than 40, 90 minutes across the season, uh, which then creates situations where someone like Mohamed Salah will go, well, I'm going to go off to AFCON. So you need to make sure I can't play in these certain sections, which should, in theory, open up minutes for academy players and whatnot. Hmm. Talk, talking of capping minutes, I'm, I'm, I quite like the way that now the players actually play extra 20 minutes per match. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Incredible. Incredible. It's ridiculous. Still, five teams going down this season. Wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> <laughs> and still Everton would stay up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, one game to go from match day seven, and it is Man United nil, Crystal Palace one. First time that Crystal Palace had scored in the first half of a game this season. What a goal it was, too. Joachim Anderson, did you enjoy that one, Sasha? Oh. <laughs> Rifled it by sight-footing it into the top corner as the ball's coming across. It's a beautiful finish. Goal of the month contender. Do you think? Yeah, I think yeah. so. I think it's just such a lovely goal. Yeah. Roy Hodgson becomes the first manager ever to go unbeaten in five successive Premier League visits to... Old Trafford, four of which were with Palace, the other with Watford. Lots of people riding in on the subject of Roy. 
FPL Banger podcast says, can we give Roy Hodgson some love? Two weeks ago, he was listening to Palace lose to Villa on the radio from a hospital bed. Yesterday, he dunked on a billion-dollar team with Jordan Ayew and Joel Ward. A Kaz B, hello Kaz, uh, says, can we have a few minutes on Palace and more specifically Roy Hodgson, back from illness, etc. and so on. What is he doing particularly right in the panel's opinion? I think it's the fact he's not doing anything outstandingly wrong. He, he plays three strengths. He's, he's got a squad that is very well suited for middle block, compact, defensive shape, really maximising their attacking chances. He's got two or three very good attacking pieces, as a, and he's got a very, very good defender in Mark Guayi, and he's playing to his best player's strengths. They've got a very good, cohesive spine, so the way the centre-back plays matches the way that deepest midfielder plays, which matches the way that best creative player plays, which also matches the way their wide players play and the way their striker plays. And Roy's just like, there you go. Square pegs, square holes, off you pop. And that's going to win you more games than lose you. And it means when you're up against a team that's highly dysfunctional, mm. you're away. So players who, who match the style of their teammates is something that, for example, Man United don't enjoy. Indeed. Mm. All right. Anyone else got any thoughts on Palace? Yeah, I thought with interest because I think, you know, if you look at, you know, the lineup that faced United, the re- one real gem there is Eze. Um, mm. And... The guys around him, I think, are best probably described as functional, um, you know, starting with the goalkeeper. The goalkeeper, very unfussy, kind of standard goalkeeper that doesn't need to do anything extraordinary. Sam Johnston, I think he does it very well. And the guys in front of him do, do the same stuff. What fascinates me in that team as well is Jeffrey Schlup. You know, he's, he, was, he won the league with Leicester. You know, he's been around for a very long time. And he's just very steady there on the left for them. Jordan Ayew, again, yeah, you know, I, I know your thoughts about Jordan <laughs> Ayew. Um, <laughs> Mateta up top, not a, not, a, not a goal scorer by any means, but altogether it all works. But I think also the player who probably sums up this team is Will Hughes. He is that, again, unfussy midfielder. He was there at Watford. He's there here doing that job of just being, just holding the, thing, the whole thing together. I think very much a Hodgson team. But I, I think all those players were there last season. I can't see any new signings no. in there, pretty much. So they all know each other. It's, it's the, the consistency. And you, you look at the five results he's got at Old Trafford in a row, including one for Watford. It's a very similar story every time. No more than five shots on target, no fewer than two. No more than 40% possession, no fewer than 23. So he has an average of 2.8 shots on target in those five games and 29.8 possession. Wasn't there a stat about Roy Hodgson being the the manager with the most consistent points average? No matter what club he goes to, he'll get you, what is it, 1.3 points per game or something like that, which is not good enough when you're at Anfield, but at Selhurst Park is... Yeah, it's, it's probably just fine. yeah, yeah so just it's a very steady guy. <laughs> ninth, ninth in the table right now, Palace. As for Man United, uh, they are tenth, just in the top half of things. Only a point ahead of Fulham, though. Fulham play Chelsea on Monday night, so Man United could well finish the round in the bottom half. Carl, is goal scoring the issue? Is it the fact that if Rashford and Casemiro are not on it, then they're not going to do anything? What's it this week? I think it, it's, it's all of the above. This is a team that's been decimated by injury problems. You've got Sofian Amrabat, who was meant to be the person to shore up central midfield and, and give Casemiro backup because Casemiro looked a little undercooked. And he now has to play at left back now because Luke Shaw's injured and Sergio Reglion is injured until the next international break. Rashford's in really poor form. His decision-making can be a bit awry in the best of moments, but I think... Now, not only is he snatching at shots, but also his passing radar seems to be a bit off. Bruno Fernandes and Rasmus Hoyland hasn't quite synced up yet as well. So you've got 
what was used to be a decent spine in the Ten Hag is, is no longer what it used to be last season. Uh, and there's just, just round peg square holes. Are they a worse yeah. team than last year, Carl? Uh, yeah, I'd say so. The only player in the United eleven right now who's playing to a better level than they were last season is perhaps Diogo Dallo at right back. He has to do that because there's no other fit right back, which is... <sighs> this is a football club that wants to be sold for at least 6.5 billion. And sometimes I look at the mess and I despair and go, how? How can you possibly ask for that much money? Well, it's not about what they're doing on the field, I guess, at least in, <laughs> in part. I mean, they, they, their economic situation is remarkably results-proof, or at least has, mm. has proven to be. But the figures say that this is their worst start to a top-flight campaign since eighty-nine, ninety. Is this the worst Man United team for over three decades? No, no. Uh, and I think that you have to have an asterisk on United's form right now due to the amount of injuries. Uh, I thought Mason Mount, who has just returned from injury, was quite good and he will be very important for when United get better um, I believe I, I predicted United to finish fourth on an early episode of Totally this mm-hmm. season I think I'll change that now and say if United are to finish in the Champions League spaces it's because they're going to get in through that fifth door Carl I have no idea what you're talking about Sasha can you explain uh, yes yeah, so from this season they've introduced a new thing so the countries with the two highest European coefficients right. this season, uh-huh. we'll get an extra Champions Based League. Based on this season's results? Just this season only. Yeah. We'll get an extra Champions League place. Next season. Yeah. So if England, English teams do quite well in Europe, right. fifth place will get the Champions League. Or Man United could win the Champions League. That's not going to happen. Well, they're taking on Galatasaray at Old Trafford on Tuesday. Are you going along, Carl? I, I will, I will, I will indeed. Mm. I'm sorry I said that's not going to happen. That just felt really mean. <laughs> uh, Carl, can I, but can I, can I be mean? Is this season a write-off? Sorry, uh, to respond to a question with another question. What exactly are you writing off? Because I thought United were just going to finish in Champions League spaces. I think they might struggle to finish in the Champions League spaces the way they got even fifth. I mean, when you lose four games out of seven, that can ruin a season. And not just in terms of putting you behind, in terms of resetting the mentality of the whole club and approach and what they can do yes i i think they'll still sneak into champions league qualification but i the reboot of a reboot Mm. that you're that you're speaking of that's going to be really interesting again there were boos at full time at old trafford right and that's there were also boos after the brighton defeat as well this Mm. this is the first the boos at brighton was the first time ten Hag was booed by fans and i believe it's not beginning of the end but I think now we're beginning to see open descent from Manchester United fans towards Ten Hag and say, perhaps he might not be the man. What, what, what about the players, Carl? <laughs> uh, I can only... No. What's your guess? <laughs> I, th- I think they look mentally fatigued. Uh, a number of them are probably physically fatigued because Eric Ten Hag was loath to rotate the team in multiple competitions last season. Uh, and I think the concerning thing for, for fans is the players don't seem to have properly absorbed all of Ten Hag's tactical instructions. There seems to be more repetitive. Ten Hag is very animated when he's talking to his fullbacks about when they need to push up and attack and when they need to hold their position, which after a season and a bit, the fullback should be able to do that automatically. The mm. fact that he's still having to repeat the same instructions is concerning. Mm. All right. Sure, we'll address this topic in future episodes of the Totally Football Show. But listener... So we come to the end of today's edition. Many thanks to Sasha and Carl and Tim and producer Charlie. Remember, it's a big European week. So, yes, we will be back late night Monday, early morning Tuesday with the Euro boys uh, previewing the Champions League and Europa League and Conference League and all that stuff. And also talking about what happened in the various continental 
competitions over the weekend, etc. and so on. Uh, have yourself a super Monday until we join you again. For now, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Discover bonus video content by searching for The Totally Football Show on YouTube and see the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.